Wouldn't it be great if Christians could talk about the Bible and various issues without fighting or arguing or name-calling? Imagine if we could just sit down, have a cup of coffee, discuss, and even if we disagree, treat each other with respect. That's what this podcast is all about, kind, loving Christian conversations. It's not a sermon or a Bible class. It's just followers of Jesus talking about life and faith. I hope this show encourages you to have conversations like this with people in your life. I'm Wes McAdams, and I want to welcome you to the Crosstalk Podcast. We all probably agree that Jesus died for our sins, but what does that even mean? What does it mean that Jesus' death makes life and forgiveness possible for his followers? That's a question about atonement. Today's discussion is all about the atoning death of Jesus. My guest today is my friend, an incredibly brilliant guy, Stephen Skaggs. We'll walk through a few traditional theories of atonement, as well as share our own thoughts on what it means for Jesus to have died for our sins. Hope you enjoy this conversation. So I was thinking, and you, you can tell me if, if uh, you have a different idea, but I was thinking that we could talk about, um, first, I, I don't know that we use the word atonement very much, you know, just yeah. in, uh, the, the average Christian preachers, we talk about it all the time, but yeah. I don't know that the average Christian talks about atonement that much. So well, maybe we can find it. Definitely not in, you know, everyday conversation. You know, right, right. I, right. I, I, Jim, I, I atone for you. Yesterday. Right, exactly. Yeah, um, yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I guess there, there might be a, a way well, we could use it. Uh, in a, I guess in a non-theological way, but poetic justice, you might use it. In a, right. But the the word atone in Hebrew is yom, uh, just kapor, um, uh, and it just basically means to cover the depth, to cover someone's depth. Um, and it's used in a legal sense, um, but it's also used like if you and I went out to lunch and you left your wallet and you're like, oh, hey, Steve, uh, I, uh, I need somebody to cover me. You would, uh, you cover their debt. So, um, but it's not just, uh, atonement in, for sin especially, it's not just a light slap on the wrist and you you just go and uh, do your thing, uh, but it's meant atonement, especially, is meant to elicit behavior change, lifestyle change. Mm, um, yeah. So I, I don't know. I think that analogy helped me to appreciate what atonement means. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that just the understanding that, like you said, with a debt uh, or when something something has been broken. I forget who it was that talked about it in that sense. You know, if somebody breaks a vase, you know, in your house, somebody has to cover it, right? Somebody has yeah. to cover the cost of that. Now you can you can enforce it and make the person who broke it cover their own debt, you know, cover replace what, what has been broken, or you can forgive it, but you can't just say, okay, it's no big deal because it actually happened and and a a cost has to be paid. And so someone has to cover it. So if the, if the forgiver or if the owner of the lamp is going to cut or the vase is going to cover the cost of it, then he, he atones for, he covers over that cost on behalf of the other person. And just like your analogy, your metaphor about, you know, going to lunch and somebody else covers the cost. Somebody has to cover it, though. There, There's an outstanding debt or there's an outstanding uh, wrong that's been committed or something. And so it it really is is helpful, I think, 
when we think about sin and we think about uh, justice, that that there's something that has to be taken care of. There's a mess that has to be cleaned up. There's a brokenness that has to be healed. There's a debt that has oh, yeah. to be uh, paid for. And so however you, whatever metaphor you want to use uh, for it, uh, I think it's helpful to to realize that sin has to be taken care of. It just, it can't be uh, brushed aside or, or I forget it, the way you said it, but, yeah. uh, but it has to be, it can't just be winked at. It has to be dealt with. Right. So, okay. So, so there's kind of a, you know, cover over is, is just the, the definition of it. But as you and I know, there are all different kinds of working theories. Right. Uh, we, we call them atonement theories uh, that are out there that, that help us maybe, to, or, or maybe not, don't help us, depending on your perspective, uh, but help a person to think through how does atonement in Scripture work? Um, what, what is atonement as far as the biblical story is concerned? Uh, so so let's sort of walk through some of those atonement theories, and, and you're really good. I've, I've seen some of your posts on Facebook, and you're really good at articulating uh, some of the different atonement theories. So let's sort of walk through what are some of the different theories that are out there. I appreciate that. Um, yeah. Um, basically, the, the atonement ideas are uh, trying to answer this question is how does the death of one innocent man, albeit you know, God's son, how does the death of one man cover or take away the, the guilt of the entire world? And, um, you know, that's... Um, so the, 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 the theories of atonement are designed to kind of postulate what exactly did Jesus's death accomplish? Um, and so throughout the years, there's been uh, different theories. The earliest theories were the uh, ransom theory, uh, starting with origin in the late three, third century and the uh, Christus Victor model, which dates all the way back to Tertullian um, and the other church fathers. Um, and basically the, the Christus Victor model is, you know, Christ Victor, and Christ is the victor. Um, he, Jesus, even in his own life, saw his, um, his work as a, uh, onslaught over spiritual evil. So like when Luke or Jesus is out the 70 and they come back and immediately after they report, Jesus says, I, lo, behold, I saw Satan falling out of heaven. Um, so the, the language even in the gospels before we get even to the cross is um, uh, that Jesus is waging war uh, yeah and uh there's tons and tons of metaphors for christus victor in the new testament um paul talks about uh leading captives captive how he you know he he went in and debt to death and de defeated it and then now he's leading captives captive um in revelation it talks about the lamb who died to uh, ransom uh, uh, people and tribe and tongue from every nation. Um, so it's, it's through uh, death now that he's has this power now. It's still kind of mystical exactly how 
Um, because we don't really, it's not like a warfare that we can see, but we know that it transpired at the cross because what's been told to us. So, yeah. you know, that's something that really, that really struck me in, in my latest reading through the scriptures. Uh, just that the idea of Jesus waging war against the forces of darkness and even, I guess I grew up hearing that the miracles, and I, and I probably even taught this too, because that's what I was told growing up, was that the miracles of Jesus were simply to confirm who he was. They just confirmed his identity. Uh, so so Jesus did all of the things that he did. He gave sight to the blind. He healed the lame. He, he wrote, raised the dead. You know, he did all of these things uh, just to confirm, yes, I am the Son of God. And, and, and there's some truth to that. That's not, that's not totally wrong. Uh, but the, the gospel writers are so clear when you read the whole story, when you read through the whole thing, they're so incredibly clear that Jesus is waging war against the kingdom of Satan, against the kingdom of darkness, uh, the, the, the rulers of darkness, the, the powers. And, and, and every miracle that he does is part of that. And then when he sends the the disciples out, uh, even with a limited commission, and he they go out and they heal and they they uh, they do good works. They do the works that Jesus does. So so yeah, I, I think that if we don't recognize that the death of Jesus has something to do with Jesus defeating the forces of darkness, uh, then we're, we're really missing the point of the big picture, not just the cross and the resurrection, uh, but also Jesus' entire ministry and his continued reign right now. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, obviously we can't go through verse by verse, but I think Matthew 16, 18, um, you know, I always heard this and, uh, um, where Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That the gates of hell are on the, are on the defense uh, or where the church is on the defense and then the, the gates of, are trying to attack it and weaken it. Uh, but I think what Jesus is saying here um, is that he's going to build his church and that it's going to be on the offense against the gates of hell. Um, mm. Especially and you consider that um, uh, straightway after, immediately after he has this conversation, he starts talking about his death. Uh, and then he says, get behind me, Satan. So I think there's uh, some ties there um, that Jesus saw not only his kingdom work um, being uh, an attack on the gates of hell, uh, but also that he would give to his disciples immediately um, the power, uh, the power that he would show to them. Yeah. And, and don't you think that it's, it's interesting that most translations, including the ESV, not just like the King James, uh, but they translate that word there in, in Matthew 16, 18 as hell. And, and it's really Hades, right? Um, it's not Gehenna, but it's Hades. And, And I think you're, you're exactly right about the death that I, I think that, so much of what Jesus is doing is reclaiming uh, humanity, reclaiming Israel specifically, and then later the, the Gentiles as well, from the powers of sin and death. And, and you know, it, it's so interesting to me how we, we have, I, I, I hesitate to say the word spiritualized, we've, we've 
overly spiritualized, maybe the Bible. Um, and we, we forget that our biggest problem as human beings is that we're mortal. You know, we, we die, we're dirt, you know, and every single one of us, we know Ecclesiastes illustrates this really well, that, that we recognize that we are, we are destined to die. We're destined for the grave. Uh, but Jesus rescues us from that destiny uh, by by breaking death's bond and hold on us. And and in that way, I think that there's so much there in Matthew 16 that the gates of hell, the gates of death, the gates of the realm of death, Hades, will not prevail against the church, that Jesus breaks the bonds of death, the, the bonds. And, and I, I love the way Paul puts it in Romans 5 and 6 about death reigns from the time of Adam to the time of Christ. Death reigns through sin. And because of sin, death reigns over us, like like Pharaoh over the Israelites. And Jesus breaks the bonds that uh, that death has on us, and and the gates of Hades, the gates of the realm of death, will not prevail against the church because of what Jesus has done. Yeah, yeah. Um, so the the second, um, I'm gonna try to give a summary of each. Um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, the keep ransom, going. The ransom atonement theory is was postulated by Origen, and it's uh, so it's a pretty ancient idea. It's kind of sounds silly to a lot of modern Westerners, but the idea is that God uh, ransomed in the way that we think of ransoms that um, that He sent Jesus to essentially. He was making a deal with the devil, and he sent Jesus uh, over to Satan to be uh, executed. But uh, the devil got more than he bargained for and didn't realize that uh, Jesus actually uh, was going to rise from the dead, and the devil lost his bargain. Um, essentially deceiving Satan. And this is a interesting theory. Um, my first time I looked at it, I was like, this is so weird. It's, just not, it's not possible. Um, but there are some verses that I think leave some, some credence to it. And I'm not full on it, but um, like in Leviticus, the... The Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, and mm-hmm. there is uh, two goats, one that we call the goat of sacrifice, and the other is typically called the scapegoat, and the goat um, in, I think it's Leviticus 15, or is it it's 16, Leviticus 16, uh, Leviticus 15 is about minstrels, <laughs> anyway, Leviticus 16, sorry, um, Leviticus 16 says that one of the goats is for Azazel, or Azarel. And so this, the goat would have the sins, the depths of the peoples put on the goat, and then the goat is sent to the devil, essentially. Azazel is, an, is another name. A lot of commentators uh, put Azazel with uh, the devil. Um, so... And so he sent away into the wilderness to Azazel. So it's not, but I don't think that 
Uh, and this isn't the only verse, of course, Jesus says about himself that the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. The word ransom appears there. And there's other verses where uh, it seems as if the, the powers don't really know what they're doing and they kill Jesus as if they're dis- being deceived, which God does deceive powers. Um, otherwise, they would not have killed um, him. Um, but in Leviticus 16, it has the goat being sent away into the wilderness, um, loaded with the guilt. And it's not that, I don't think in the point in Leviticus 16, I don't think the point is that he's paying off Azazel or the devil. I think the point is, is that he's he's putting sin where it belongs. Like it's, um, like if you're ever OCD and your children get into Play-Doh and suddenly you have this big mess, so you have to divide the yellow from the red and the green, and you have to put them in their own compartments. So what God is doing here, I believe, is he's taking away all the black, the sin, and the evil, and he's putting it in its compartment where it belongs. He's sending it away from Israel. Um, so it's an interesting theory. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that is interesting. Um, so Origen wrote a lot about that. Um, the third um, third theory was populated by, popular by Augustine. Um, I'm going to butcher recapitula- recapitulation theory. Uh, recap- Recapitulation? Yeah, you said it better. Um, and it's essentially... I like the idea of it. Um, I don't know. It's essentially the undoing of Adam, like you said in Romans 5, and how one is Adam and now a second Adam is Jesus. And um, it's, uh, it's a good theory. Um, let me pull up. A... And, you know, while we're going through this, I just wanted to say, like, in the words of C.S. Lewis, when he talked about the atonement and mere Christianity, he said, I'm just a layman. <laughs> he said, I'm not the no, no, this. Um, yeah. So it's, it's um, I think it's good to pause and just to, just to say that um, you don't have to be a master chef to enjoy a good steak. Uh, <laughs> That's a good way to put it. You don't have to know your marble or a one sauce. I mean, all those things like they do help if you're like, Mm -hmm. if you've refined your palate and everything, but you know, if you put a a steak, a good steak from a a beggar, I mean, he's just going to eat it and know that it was a good meal. Um, Yeah. So I think inherent in the, in the atonement itself is just the beauty. So all we're looking at here is just the mechanics of or uh, so it can be technical but I think it, for it's worthwhile hey everybody if you're enjoying this conversation you might also enjoy my new audiobook beyond the verse available on audible if you're not already an audible subscriber you can get my book for free when you sign up for an audible subscription just go to radicallychristian.com slash audible a-u-d-i-b-l-e okay now back to the conversation. I, I think that I, I think you're exactly right. I think that there's a part of it that 
that on the one hand, we need to know what story we're a part of. We need to know why why is it that that Jesus dying on the cross, why is it that that a man 2,000 years ago from uh, Nazareth dying on the cross makes it so that I can live with him forever. You know, what, you know, what, what story, what story is that? Why am I a part of that story? What, what does that mean for me? So I think that is important. But at the same time, like you said, I, I've known a whole lot of Christians that all they know is that God loves them, that he sent his son to die for them, and that somehow by his son dying on a cross 2,000 years ago, they can live right. forever. And they, they, they believe that and they know it. They say, I don't know why that's true. I don't know how that works. And, and God bless us for that type of uh, just blissful, you know, unquestioning faith, you know, and, and I think that there's, there's a lot of truth. I love the way that you said that, you know, just sit down and enjoy it, you know, and, and, and we've been, you know, praising God and thanking God for what he's done in Jesus for a long time. And sometimes over examining things can, can almost ruin it. You know, when, when you, when you sit down to a good meal and, and somebody wants to talk about the mechanics of, well, where did the cow come from and, and how did it get butchered? And, you know, how did it get on my plate? You know, we might ruin the meal by talking about it too much, but I, I think there is a joy and a benefit to knowing what story we're right, part of. Right. Um, so recapitulation, I, I, I'm horrible at pronouncing that word, uh, but no Ephesians one ten is essentially where the word comes from. For um, it's not uh, Augustine actually; it's Irenaeus, the one that, um, uh, in, in uh, against her- Heresies chapter four, um, verse six. He talks about it, but the uh, word actually comes from uh, Ephesians one ten, where it says that God's purpose is in the fullness of the times to sum up all things in Christ to things. In the heavens and the things upon the earth, the word to sum up is the in the Greek is the word recapitulate, uh, recapitulate in Latin. Um, so, some in in Christ, he summed up the things in Adam. He summed up. Um, so, um, Irenaeus wrote, "I would not." Um, quoting Justin, he says. I would not have believed the Lord himself if he had announced any other than he who is our farmer, maker, and nourisher. But because the only begotten Son came to us from the one God who both made the world and formed us and contains and administers all things, summing up his own handiwork in himself, my faith toward him is that steadfast my love to the Father immovable God bestowing both upon us. Um, so essentially it's, uh, a reversal of what is lost in Adam is now recovered in Christ and it's chiefly through his yeah. suffering that this is accomplished as the theory goes. So the thorns and thistles, uh, that were cursed the ground are now reversed. And I think there's, there, there's truth to that. And, um, even we sing, we even sing that, um, we sing, uh, uh, what's the nativity song that's popular? Um, not, not Silent Night. It's the other one. Joy is it? Joy to the world. Yeah, joy to the world. Um, Christ is born, and then the third verse talks about how the the thorns and thistles are are curses removed as far as yeah, so far as the curse is found. Yeah. Yeah. So, 
Um, so there's, I think there's some truth to that, that there, that the work of Christ, um, accomplishes the reverse of Adam's, um, Adam being the first archetype is now, um, kind of redeemed in the work of the second Adam. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it's a good, it's a good, uh, thing <laughs> i like that i like that so the the next and so i yeah. guess i so go ahead um i was just going to go on to the next two yeah please do um so the uh well the next one actually is the moral influence or moral example and for probably for the longest time i felt like this was the weakest i just kind of looked at it like it was a naturalistic explanation of the death of christ mm. And um, actually, um, it's actually uh, from the over 10 years ago, um, it came, um, it was kind of, okay, so 10 years, 10, not 10 years, 10 centuries ago, there was a big movement right before the Reformation um, of the uh, Anselm and Abelard. So you won't, you won't remember those names, but they are the ones that came up with the two alternative theories to the ransom. Um, and the first was the moral influence or moral example theory. And the second was the, um, the satisfaction model. And we're going to, I'm reserving what I think is the best for last, because I think we're going to spend the more, I don't know how long this conversation is going, but, uh, we're saving the best for last, I think. Um, but so the moral influence is Jesus dies as a demonstration of God's love. And that so it's, it's somewhat might be looked at like a naturalistic. There's not a power going on behind it. It's just when you look at the, the love of God manifested on the cross, that it is... Um, that it is uh, love. Love is the primary engine. And, and that's what I, I agree with, that the love of God is so powerful that um, it people can't help but take their, can't, they can't take their eyes off the beauty of the cross. Um, it's so bewildering, yet it's so full of love. And I think people just kind of get that um, when they see it. Um, and in John especially, um, several verses um, show that the love that God, that Jesus had for Israel, the love that Jesus had for his own people, and the love that he wanted for the world. Um, because the Bible doesn't say for God so hated the world that he killed his son, but rather that God so mm -hmm. loved the world that he gave his son. Um, uh, and then uh, John I really like this. Uh, N.T. Wright was the one that pulled this out. But John 13, 1, um, Jesus, at the night of his, he knew everything was about to go down. He said at the very end of verse 1, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Mm -hmm. um, so love is the primary engine behind the cross, um, not hate or anything else, but this divine mercy and love. 
to save his people um, because the world was already condemned itself. It didn't need further condemnation. It was already condemned. So that's the um, essentially the moral influence theory that the love of God is perfect. And um, so it's, yeah, that's the basic idea of it. Yeah. Yeah, I think that like 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 we've said with most of these, I think there's a lot of truth to that. It's amazing how often the the apostles came back to um, to point people back to the cross to say, "This is your example," and how Jesus would say, "Love one another as I have loved you," and that's demonstrated primarily in the cross. John 13 that you just brought up. I mean, he he washed the apostles' feet, but even that I think points forward to the cross itself as an example of this is what, not only what love looks like, but this is what your life lo should look like. And as John said in 1 John 3, uh, that that because he laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives uh, for one another. So it, it certainly does. Whether or not that's that's our theory of atonement, it definitely should play a part. You know, and I've often said that the cross should become our moral compass, that that's our true north. Yeah. This is what the life of a disciple looks like is he took up his cross and gave his life for others. And we ought to do the same. Yeah. So the satisfaction, sorry, kind of going on now. No, yeah, go, go. What for I it. think is uh, what we've typically uh, grown up with is the satisfaction model, uh, not the satisfaction, but we're going to, this is the next to the, the, what we're talking about. But the satisfaction model, basically, that um, sin debt was satisfied, that God's wrath, that there was a great debt, um, that through the work of Christ that he accomplished by assuaging the wrath of God, being a propitiation um, to make restitution, I guess back into the idea of atonement, I think. Um, to make amends for what's broken, paying back what was taken. Um, and so, um, so since God's justice has been violated, that's what must be atoned for. It's a legal concept of balancing out the injustice. Um, so again, there's tons and tons of metaphors that talk about our sin debt and um, Matthew, um, I think uh, a helpful story that Jesus tells himself is in, I think it's in Matthew 25, it might be a different, uh, Matthew, I think maybe 18, where Jesus gives the parable of the man that owed an exorbitant amount of money that he could never pay off, but he was forgiven the entire debt. And there was, there was there was definitely a debt owed, but the master settled accounts, and when he couldn't pay, he forgave the entire debt. Um, yeah. And so often through Jesus' stories, he just kind of like opens um, opens the room there. But of course, we we can get into the. Um, uh, the what was later developed into what we call now the penal substitution atonement theory which came about 
in um, uh, came about and was developed in the Reformation period. And to this day, this is the most popular, most uh, when people think about the death of Christ, this is probably automatically what they think about, that we were sinners, that we deserved punishment. God didn't want to kill us, but um, but to save us, he had to make restitution, so he kills his son. So now we can, um, as it were, go to the good place and not the bad place. <laughs> and, um, and so there's obviously some caricaturing going on here. Um, and definitely that, um, Isaiah 53 points out that he is indeed our substitute and he's indeed the act of Christ is penal. Um, mm -hmm. you know, all Romans, second Corinthians, Galatians, Colossians, first Peter talks about how he, died and let's, for, sorry to yeah, interrupt yeah. you, Stephen. Let, let, let's, let's define penal for just a second. Cause that may be a term that, that some people aren't, aren't familiar with. So by penal, we mean, go ahead. If you want to define it. Yeah. That. It just, it means, uh, like in your courtroom, it's, uh, you right. have a judge and you judge, um, can have the power to pardon you or to condemn you. And it's right. essentially through the work of Christ that now uh, God can uh, cancel your, your, um, your crime. Yeah. So instead of talking, so like when we say penal, we penal mean like, as opposed to speaking of it as a metaphor of debt or as a metaphor of sickness or a metaphor of whatever, we're talking about it in, in the sense of we're standing before a judge and there's a punishment that's due us and Jesus is taking that, the punishment that we're, we deserve uh, legally. So it's our legal punishment. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a legal, the, both the satisfaction and the penal substitution there's also the governmental theory, which ties into the all three of these, um, but that's not um, it's not the most popular theory. Not not for those listening. I'm not you know uh, you know there's people that believe that, and that's fine. Um, but yeah, um, you know you've done some extensive work in Isaiah 53. Um, mm -hmm. showing how the servant is being bruised and the people are reflecting. They're saying, wait, he's, he's doing this. Uh, this is the punishment that we deserve. We thought he was being stricken by God, but no, he's, he's being killed for us. They're, they're surprised yeah. that um, they thought all the time that he was being uh, smitten, but now he's being wounded for us. Um, so somehow... Yeah, it was really helpful. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, Romans 3, 23 through 26 is really the basis for um, the penal substitution and atonement theory. Um, basically, all has sinned, and now it's through Christ, who God put forth as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood. Um, he died to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed, 
as a judge. It was able, it was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous and that, ju- that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Um, so just and justifier, you know, he's the just judge now that can justify um, because of, I don't, you know, exactly know all the mechanics of this theory personally, but it, it kind of, um, it honestly kind of, uh, I think one of the weaknesses that most atonement theories, I think, have, not most, but um, particularly this one, if I'm being direct, um, is that it fails to, um, it fails to take in the entire story of the Bible. Um, yeah. It essentially, I don't know if you've ever read how God became king from right, but um, he shows how even in, you know, ancient creeds like the, the Nicene Creed, that essentially what when they wanted to articulate what was the bare minimum of belief that they had, they always go from, the first line, which is maker of heaven and earth. And they immediately drop down to the virgin birth. <laughs> and they <laughs> Just skip, skip over, over the 90 or 75% of the yeah. Bible. Yeah. And that's, and it skips out also the life of, you know, life of Jesus. And yeah. so right. essentially all that matters is that, uh, we fell and then Christ died. And what we may not realize what we're, when we're saying this, and what I've, I've, I've talked to several unchurched people my age, um, 25 to 30s, um, I'll be 30 next week, uh, or 29 next week, or next month. Um, but what we, what we don't realize that what they're hearing isn't, um, a just God. They're hearing a story about how God is angry at you and that he is so angry that to alleviate his anger, he uses Jesus, who happens to be his son. He uses an innocent man so that guilty people can go free. And in no, ju- in no, court- no court- courtroom is it just to condemn an innocent man so that guilty, evil, murdering people can go free. Um, Mm -hmm. And inevitably, I think when we divorce penal substitution, I don't think it's a bad theory. I think when we divorce it, however, from the story of the Bible, all it becomes is a story of a a volatile, angry deity that's out for bloodthirst. And it, it, it robs... When we don't realize that the, the story of the Bible is a story about God and Israel, then we're going to miss out mm-hmm. on what exactly happens in the death of Jesus. Yes. Yeah, we have this tendency to, I think, see sin on on purely individualistic terms. And, and there is there's obviously a sense in which sin is individual and personal, and I have personally sinned against God, I have individually sinned against God, but we miss out when we, like you said, divorce uh, the gospel, divorce what Jesus has done 
the atonement from the story of Israel, we fail to see the collective sense of sin. Um, and so I think that's part of our problem. Um, and, and then also when we when we divorce it from the story of Israel, we fail to see um, how God is using Israel to redeem humanity and how it was always Israel's vocation. It was always their job uh, to bring the nations to God and how Jesus is fulfilling that. So I think you're exactly right. I think that's the biggest mistake that we make uh, in terms of the atonement is that we we hear these words like justice and justify and righteousness, and we hear them purely in Western thought uh, and we we divorce it from well what what's the story of Israel about how did God illustrate how he makes people right and what he does to bring the lost sheep back home what what sorts of stories do we have in scripture and there's a million there's so many it's filled with these kinds of things on how God operates and how God brings his lost people back home yeah. how he redeems the exile and how he reconciles them to himself. Uh, and if we just go to the stories of Scripture, then I think we'll see the atonement a lot right. clearer. I, I, yeah, I agree. Um, I want to. I kind of go. I don't. Again, I don't know how much time we have, but um, uh, I want to go back to what I think is one of the important stories for Paul in Romans chapters one through five, um, and in Genesis chapter 10, 9, 10, and eleven. Um, you know, I often just looked at these chapters like, oh, here's where languages and people come from. And that is not at all what they're, these stories are, are telling. Yeah, it is telling. I mean, it is telling how people came about and all that, but there's a deeper truth to, uh, what is transpiring here that I didn't realize, um, until a few years ago, but in, in, in Genesis after the flood and the, the story goes that the three sons are repopulating it's typically called the table of nations um, there are exactly a number of 70. Um, 70 is an important jewish number um, it's the number of families that were disinherited at the tower of babylon or what we typically call the tower of babel but it's, it's the tower of babylon is the greek word um and what happens at the Tower of Babylon is God disinherits the families. He disinherits all of them. Um, and we know this from Deuteronomy 28 and Romans 1. Um, Deuteronomy 28 talks about, it goes to this Genesis 10 story of the disinheritance. And then immediately after, the, the next story is, God selecting Abraham as the one family through whom the rest of, so God disinherits the entire circle as it were, and now he picks one, not, um, and it's, it's choice. He picks the one as his election. And this is the, the family that he's going to use through whom all blessings will be restored. And so the Genesis 11 story, um, God using Abraham the, through the, the vehicle through which um, he's going to reverse 
the Tower of Babylon and um, Romans 1 talks about this where God gives in the wrath of God he gives up um, the people to do what they want to do he gives them up um, surrenders them um, allows them to and then he chooses Israel so the Gentiles being disinherited need to be re-inherited. That's why Paul talks about inheritance and adoption of sons so much that now this is possible. Um, so the Gentiles are disinherited and the vehicle is now in exile. And I like the analogy by N.T. Wright, it's as we're you know, you have a lifesaver and people, someone's drowning, you have a lifesaver, you throw the lifesaver out, but the lifesaver gets snagged in the rocks. And now it can't save anyone. Mm. So part of Jesus's mm -hmm. death is saving the lifesaver so that the Gentiles can now finally be blessed and that's accomplished. So the church isn't, um, shouldn't be thought of as that's why Paul calls church new Israel. Um, it's not, it's not God has plan B, you know, Israel was to save the world plan A, but now the church is, it's not that it's not either or it's both. And now the church is right. the, is the outgrowth of when Gentiles are finally in Israel. Um, so anyway, there's a lot of, a lot of rabbit trails there, but yeah. Yeah. I think, I think that that's exactly right. And I think that we fail to see that, uh, because like you said, we, I think we've, we've taken the Bible or the, the old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, and we've, we've just delegated those to being like moral stories, you know, or kind of Aesop's fables type of thing. Uh, and then we, we just take and isolate the death of Jesus. And then we try to figure it out that way. And then again, like we said, you know, we, we see sin as very, being very individualistic and we see salvation the same way. You know, I sinned, I messed up, Jesus died to save me. Like he was thinking about me personally and he took my personal sins and he saved me. And, you know, and we've made it, we've made, and it, it's not that that story is wrong. It's just that it's so diluted that it is barely recognizable when compared to the biblical story. The biblical story is epic and it's, it's global. Yeah. It's, it's cosmic. Um, and, and Jesus really is. And, and I think, I think there's so much truth to all of those different theories that you laid out. And I think you laid them out really well, Stephen. And I, I think think that there's there's little bits of truth to to all of those things but i think again like you said it has to be the, however we understand jesus's death and his burial and his resurrection it has to be rooted in the story of israel it has to be rooted in the hebrew scriptures for paul it was for matthew it was for mark it was for luke it was even for john you know and even even such a universal gospel as we've often thought about it i'm preaching through john right now and and John still everything he says every the way he says everything that he says it is so rooted in the story of Israel in the Hebrew scriptures even though it's for the world this message is for Jews and Gentiles to the Jew first and to the to the Greek also 
but but it's it's rooted in the Hebrew scriptures, and I think we we miss out on grasping and understanding and celebrating the story the way that we should uh, when we divorce it from the Hebrew scriptures. Yeah, most definitely. I want to thank my church family, the Church of Christ on McDermott Road, and our editor, Travis Pauly, for making this podcast possible. And thank you for listening. If you haven't already done so, please rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening. I also want to invite you to check out Logos Bible Software, who has partnered with us to give our listeners a great discount. Just go to radicallychristian.com slash Logos, L-O-G-O-S. I think you'll love the software and you'll get a great discount by using that link. As always, I love you, God loves you, and I hope you have a wonderful day.